case uh, we haven't met yet, my name is Jay Price, and I'm the campus pastor here at Triumph West, and we're so glad that you're here today for our annual celebration week. And if you're new like me, or even somewhat new here at Triumph, you might not know that we have this celebration week right around this time every year. And the reason we have it is so we can look back on the past ministry year and celebrate some of the ways that we've seen God at work in us and and, and through us and even around us. And as we look back on this past ministry year, well, it's been something else, hasn't it? Uh, a special kind of something else. Masks and social distancing and quarantines and you know, being cooped up and, and being obsessively careful and even being scared. I mean, let's be honest, the last year's been hard. It's been painful because we've lost out on a lot of things. Uh, Truth is, we're bone weary from thinking about this, thinking about all the things that we've lost, jobs and and income and homes, even things like vacations and graduations, weddings. We've lost loved ones. We've lost a year's worth of time with loved ones, time that we're never going to get back. And for some of us, we even lost the chance to say goodbye to loved ones in person, and all kinds of other things. And we don't want to ignore that. I mean, we don't want to just gloss over that. We want to lament that the last year has been hard and painful, but we also want to celebrate, celebrate how God has been at work, even even during the hardest times. And and so that's why, uh, like Tony said, that we invited everybody to fill out one of these cards. Because the card provides us a space, and again, as Tony said, is an act of worship, to, on one side, write about the things that that have been painful and hard, and on the other side, to write about how we've seen God working in these hard and painful times. So these little cards, in a way, represent us as God's people who are mourning and celebrating at the same time. Can you do that, though, really? Uh, I mean, can you mourn and, <clears throat> and celebrate at the same time? Is that even really a thing? Well, there's this really, <clears throat> really interesting little passage in the book of Ezra. It's where God's people are finally coming back to Israel from being in exile. The, the Babylonians, uh, years before, had captured Jerusalem and, and torched the city and destroyed God's temple. And then they dragged the people off into exile uh, uh, to Babylon. But now, it's like 70 years later, and they're coming back. And first things first, they want to rebuild the temple. So, uh, this passage in Ezra tells us that, that, that when the foundation was being laid to rebuild the temple, that, that there was this big celebration that God's people all get together to, to worship and to celebrate. I mean, this, this is such a joyous moment. <clears throat> it's the, the rebuilding of God's temple. It's a big deal. And this is what Ezra says. 
With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord. He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. And no one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise. The sound was heard far away. So I guess it is a thing. God's people were celebrating and mourning at the same time, cheering and weeping side by side with one another. And I mean, even in this huge triumphant moment, after all this time of finally rebuilding the temple, even in the midst of all that excitement and celebration, they remembered what had been lost. And they mourned and they wept. What they lost was worth mourning and weeping over. And yet, what they were now being given was worth cheering for and celebrating. So it can be done. In fact, I think I'd say, I'd go so far as to say that, that, that it should be done. Maybe even that it needs to be done. God's people need to be able to celebrate and mourn. Why? Because we live in a world of both great beauty and joy and great pain and loss. I mean, this this is what life looks like here. Until the day of the Lord when God makes everything right and new. But until then, there's beauty and pain. There's joy and loss. Celebrating and mourning. This, This is what life is like in the meantime. And in the meantime, which for us is living between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, this meantime is something that our theologians call the already and the not yet. All this means, though, is that, that there's already so much overwhelming beauty and joy in in our life of faith. There's already so much mercy and grace that's given to us, even on on our most ordinary days. But everything here is not okay. Not yet. All things here are not made new. Not yet. We aren't done dealing with pain and loss. Not yet. And as we live between the already and the not yet, beauty and joy and pain and loss are all twisted up together. In this life, you don't have one without the other. And so it only makes sense then that just like we saw in our passage from Ezra, that God's people would respond openly and and honestly and even wholeheartedly to this reality of the already and the not yet. 
In Ezra's time, they, they didn't try to deny or avoid the weeping and the mourning, and they didn't try to deny or avoid the joy and the celebrating either. What they did, what they did was, was exactly what the Apostle Paul was talking about in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 12, verse 15, he wrote, Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. In this life, we don't have one without the other. So how do you do it? How do you rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn? How do you live as a person of faith in the already and the not yet? Well, I mean, people have literally written whole books about this. So, so there obviously isn't just one answer or one way to do this, you know, to live a life of rejoicing and weeping and the already and the not yet. But our time is very limited. We don't have time for books. So I'm just going to give you one. I'm just going to give you one answer here, but it's a good one. And it, it, it just so happens to be our theme for Celebration Week. Imagine that. All right, so here it is. Uh, one of the most effective ways to live in the already and the not yet, this life of beauty and pain, weeping and rejoicing, is to know this. God works in all things for good. God works in all things for good. But here's the thing, this is one of those Bible verses that people have all kinds of ideas about. And not all those ideas are good. Because sometimes, you know, you hear people say that, oh, yeah, 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 Romans 28 means that, you know, that, that since something bad happened to me, that means that now something good or better will happen to me. Here's what I mean, that, you know, we say things like, I didn't, I didn't get that job that, that, that I really wanted, but, but that just means that God has an even better job for me. Or, uh, I wanted this relationship to work out so bad, but it didn't. We broke up. But I know that just means that God has an even better person, an even better relationship for me. So listen, that's not it, okay? That's not the promise. That's not what Romans 8.28 is promising us, which is why, and I'm going to let you all in on a little trade secret here, this is why I avoid telling stories like this, because it gives the wrong impression. It creates the wrong expectations. Like when somebody says, let me tell you a story. I really, really, really wanted this job screwing the caps on tubes of toothpaste one by one. I, I wanted that job so bad, but I didn't get it. But, but then on my way home from not getting the job, I, I bumped into this guy who, who was walking into Shields and he offered me right on the spot an even better job. And now, now, I'm the starting quarterback for the Minnesota Vikings. <laughs> Romans 8.28, baby. <laughs> All right, I mean, that, that's silly. I mean, everybody knows, obviously, that nobody wants to be the Vikings quarterback. So <laughs> I'll pack my stuff after the service. 
All right, all right, how, how, about, how about this story instead? I wanted to marry this guy so bad, but it didn't work out. He broke up with me, and I tried everything to, to get him back, but nothing I did worked. Nothing I did mattered, and he broke my heart. But then I, I'm sitting on a park bench in the pouring rain, eating Ben & Jerry's ice cream, and listening to Taylor Swift music. And this guy walks by and trips over my foot and he stumbles and falls and he lands with his head right on my lap. And he looks up at me and smiles and I look down at him and smile at his love at first sight. And we were married a week later. He's the perfect guy for me, he's my soulmate. You know what? That's wonderful. It, it, it really is. And sometimes, yes. Sometimes, yes, these things happen. Thank you, Lord, for that. Uh, it, it's a beautiful thing. But it's not the promise. It's not what Romans 8.28 is promising. What that is is just sheer grace. Just a sheer gift of grace. Because, you know what, we all know that, that there are plenty of people who don't marry the man or woman that they want to marry, and they end up never getting married, even though they desperately want to, or, or they end up in a terrible relationship, or, or something else that's painful. We know this. And again, th this is why I, I don't like to tell these stories. It's wonderful. It, it's a gift, but it's not the promise. That's not what we should expect. Romans 8.28 is not a promise that our sufferings are, are going to automatically turn into something really good for us in the near future. And Romans 8.28 is, is, isn't even a promise that our sufferings are going to turn into something really good for us in this life. Because, I mean, again, we know this. We know, we all know that, that in reality, that bad and hard and awful and painful, tragic things keep on happening, even to those who believe. And many believers die without ever seeing how God has brought any good out of some of the really bad things that happen. But, but, but because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, see, death isn't the end of the story. It wasn't the end of the story for Jesus, and in Jesus Christ, death won't be the end of the story for us. So what Romans 8.28 does promise then is that God works in all things for good. Sometimes now, yes, as a gift of grace, but always in the end. Always in the end. No matter what happens in this life, God promises us that we will have a good ending. Or in other words, we're, we're promised a happy ending. And, and let's face it, I mean, we love happy endings. We do. I mean, for almost all of us, our favorite stories are you know, the kind of stories with a happy ending kind of story where, you know, in spite of all the bad things that happen, something really good finally happens 
at the end to redeem everything. You know, the, the hero or the heroine overcomes the, uh, all the obstacles and everything turns out great. A nice, warm, fuzzy, happy ending. We like that. But there's an even better kind of story, I think. The better story is, is where the bad things are part of the happy ending. A story where you need the bad things in order to make the happy ending possible, where the happy ending depends on the bad things, where, where you literally can't have a happy ending if not for the bad things. Uh, the best example of this I can think of is the movie Signs. I don't know if any of you remember that. I think it was from early 2000s. But a, a, a lot of really bad, awful things happen to, to this one family in the story. First of all, Mel Gibson plays the main character. He's a pastor, and he gets called to the scene of, of a terrible car accident where, where someone is on the verge of dying, and he, you know, he goes there only to find out that it's actually his wife who's in the car. And he gets to her just barely in time to hear her last words. And Mel Gibson's brother, uh, played by Joaquin Phoenix, uh, he's a baseball player whose career is a giant failure. He's a strikeout king in the minor leagues because he swings literally at every pitch. Mel Gibson has a little boy, a son, who, who has this terrible asthma, and he's always having asthma attacks and is on the verge of dying. And there's also a little girl, his daughter, who, who's kind of uh, obsessive-compulsive, because every time she takes a drink of a glass of water, she doesn't like how it tastes, so she just leaves these mostly full glasses of water sitting all over the house. And then, aliens invade the world. I told you, it's just one bad thing after another. I mean, it, it's terrible. They're all, it looks like they're all going to die. I mean, I mean, this is a pretty dark movie. It's nothing but suffering and pain and loss. And, you know, this whole subplot where Pastor Mel Gibson is losing his faith because of it. And everything is just going from bad to worse. But then... At the end, there's this, there's this great reversal. And the joy of this great reversal, it just hits you like a truck. I mean, I mean, it just hits you right square in the feels. Because, I mean, it's not just that there's a happy ending here in spite of all these bad things that happened. No, 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 no. It, the, the only reason that they get the happy ending is precisely because of all the bad things that happened. They all would have died if it weren't for this list of bad things that I told you had first happened. The, the, the dying wife's final words, the, the brother's failed baseball career, the little boy's asthma, the little girl's OCD with, with the water glasses. All those bad things came together and ended up saving them in the end. All those bad things, to put it in uh, scriptural terms, all those bad things worked together for good in the end. And the joy at the end, I, I, I mean, the, the pure, raw, unadulterated joy, it, it just transforms all those bad things. 
It explains why they happen. It, it, it redeems them. In fact, the bad things that had happened are what made the joy in the end possible. The bad things made the joy even greater. That's what Romans 8.28 is promising us. One of my favorite authors, a guy named Brennan Manning, captured this idea here, and he did it in such a beautiful way. He wrote, on the last day, Jesus will look us over, not for medals or diplomas or honors, but for scars, for scars. Now think about this. Have you ever wondered why after Jesus rose from the dead, he kept showing off his scars? Why does Jesus show off those nail scars? I mean, do you realize what, what those scars are? I mean, just three days before this, three days earlier, Jesus' disciples were all basic, basically thinking, you know, when Jesus Christ is in charge, that, that I'm going to be in his cabinet. I'm going to have a corner office. I'm going to have you know, lifetime pension and benefits. My life is going to be great because Jesus is on the way to the top. Nothing can stop him, and I get to go along for the ride. But then the nails, right? Oh, those nails. When those nails went into Jesus' hands and feet, their lives as they were dreaming were over. Those nails ruined their hopes and dreams, ruined their lives, right? But in the end, Jesus says, no, look, these nail prints saved your life. Look at my hands, look at my side, look at the scars. The thing that you thought was ruining your life actually saved your life. That's why the nail prints are still on Jesus' resurrected, glorified body. To show us that God works in all things for good. Which means that one day, when you're face to face with the Lord, there's going to be a great reversal and you're going to experience the, the, the kind of off-the-charts joy that, that, that just won't make you forget the bad things that happened in your life. Some way, somehow, as only he can do, the Lord will turn all those bad things inside out. So they become a source of great joy. So they become a reason for great joy for all eternity, for you. For all of us. In other words, the Lord has promised to, to turn our great pain into even greater joy. Jesus Christ is so thoroughly triumphant over evil that every scar that you get in this life is only going to make your ending that much happier. Your future joy will, will be infinitely beyond anything you could ever ask or imagine. When we see Jesus Christ, 
we too will see the scars on his hands and his feet. And then, then we will truly see, finally see, how all the things that we thought were ruining our life had really saved it. God works in all things for good. And that, that's worth celebrating. That's, that's worth celebrating. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for your promise to work in all things for good. That promise sustains us, strengthens and comforts us, it, especially when we're suffering or in pain. And we pray that you would help us also to rejoice when it's time to rejoice and weep when it's time to weep. But don't let us rejoice or weep like those who have no hope. Because in you, Lord, and in everything you've done for us and everything you've promised us, we have more than all the hope we need. And we pray that we would all receive in abundance that great hope. That we would receive it in our lives and that, and that even right now, here today, that it would help to soothe our sorrows. And that it might even change the way we think and speak and live. For we do ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.